This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Well, I, I have to confess, my dear friends, that I'm a bit apprehensive right now. Autumn leaves are about to fall and classes are about to begin. And suddenly the world of teaching and learning that I have been used to for all these many years is changing in, or seems to be changing in fundamental ways. My students cannot write a term paper without reading, writing, or thinking. All they need to do is to press a button and hit the assignment and go to chat, Bing, Bart, Claude, whomever, and artificial intelligence will do the job for them. So where is this going to end? In the panic, I'm turning to John Bailey, who's the author of a just-released article on the Education Next website entitled, AI in Education, Leap into New Era of Intelligence Carries Risks and Challenges, but also Plenty of Promise. So John's not altogether upset. He's not in the same basket case situation that I'm in. So John, first of all, thanks for joining me today. Oh my gosh, uh, thank you for having me. It sounds like this needs to be a therapy session too. Paul, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. <laughs> well, John's a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and he's been looking at all kinds of things in depth and uh, has really put his mind to this particular topic uh, from a perspective that's neither inside the techie community nor naive as, as I am. So, um, so how good a term paper can one of these artificial guys uh, write? Can I spot something written by Chad or Charlie um, or Claude or whatever their name is? That's right. <laughs> uh, it's a great it's a great question, Paul. And, and and unfortunately, I think the answer is, I mean, these tools are getting um, more sophisticated by the day, and they can produce a pretty passable and pretty good uh, term paper. The, it depends. It depends a little bit on the tool that uh, one of your students might be using. And it also, this is the key to everything about uh, these AI tools. It depends on the prompt. If you just sort of ask ChatGPT to write a good term paper, it won't write a good term paper. But if you give it some examples, if you point it to even a couple studies or some other research or uh, some other writings, and ask it, and even ask it to write it in the style of, of other kinds of term papers, it can do a pretty remarkable job. And I think the way to think about it, that even if it's not a passable term paper now, the rate of improvement of these systems suggests that you as a professor and many of us in education are going to be facing um, you know, pretty close to, to good term papers sometime in the near future here. Well, um... So you say there's tremendous progress uh, occurring. Do we have some evidence on that? We do. In uh, one of the ways that a lot of these companies are trying to assess the intelligence of their systems is the same way that we would do with students. They, they give it uh, different tests of human intelligence. And that's everything from AP exams, the SAT, the bar exam. Uh, we just have had a whole um, round different tests with medical tests with different types of these large language models. And what you're seeing is um, two things. One, remarkable proficiency uh, that, that these systems are able to pass those tests that aren't just multiple choice, but often short responses or even essays. But as we often talk about in education, focus not just on proficiency, but growth. 
And what you've seen is the difference between ChatGPT 3, uh, which is the free version everyone is using, and ChatGPT 4, which is a paid version, you have to pay about $20 a month for that, uh, is a remarkable sort of jump in terms of accuracy. We've seen this replicated with some of Google's large language models, particularly in uh, some of their medical models. And so I, every single day, it just it feels like that these are getting more accurate. Uh, they're getting more intelligent. And then also there's just more capabilities that are being um, uh, given uh, through to users as part of these systems. Well, so I was told by an administrator that uh, AI is designed to provide persuasive answers, not necessarily correct answers. And so they said, okay, so one of the things you need to explain to your students is that these systems don't necessarily provide you with accurate information. It's just plausible information, and therefore you shouldn't rely upon them for accuracy. And I'm not so sure about that. So I wanted to ask you whether or not this administrator was actually correct. And, and maybe that was that was last June. So maybe things have changed between June and August. But uh, yeah, so uh, uh, how's, what's your take on that? No, it's a, it's a good warning. One of the, the anomalies of these systems is that they sometimes, they're so eager to please and so eager to be responsive that in that pursuit of being responsive, they can create uh, fake information that is incredibly wrong uh, and to just give you a response. And so those are, those are called technically a hallucination and hallucinations are getting rarer, but they're, they're still there. And so it's, it's one of the reasons why the best way to sort of think about these systems is as an intern. If you think about it, like if you would give your intern an assignment to draft a document for you, to do an analysis on data, um, you would never just take what an intern gave you and just give it right to your boss or publish it. You would review it. And that's almost the same mind frame you have to bring to this, is that you have a very smart, eager to please intern that has remarkable capabilities, but you always have to double check it and keep the human in the loop there. Well, how about the political bias? Is there any evidence that uh, Chad or or, or uh, Claude has a political bias? Or should I, if I'm a conservative, should I go to one of these? And if I'm a liberal, should I go to another? Uh, what is there any politics no, here? Yeah, yeah. Paul, it's yeah. such a great question. It's um, and in fact part of the part of the reason I've been so struck by this is I I was. Um, invited to be part of some early access programs by Google and by OpenAI, in part to help look for political bias and other kinds of bias. And uh, the companies are constantly trying to refine these models to eliminate bias and bias in all the different kinds of ways that you can imagine from racial bias to political bias. One of the systems that I was testing did have a political bias. When I gave it the Pew political ideology test, which kind of like Puts, puts you along a spectrum. It's not just Democrat or Republican, but a, a, on a spectrum of, of political persuasiveness, uh, this system came out to be a little bit more liberal democratic. So about 10% of the population are very center left. The companies are trying to sort of like move that and make it a little bit more centered. But I think it's also in education, we should worry not just about political bias, not just about racial bias, but pedagogical bias. Like if you're asking it to create a lesson plan uh, around the instruction of reading, is it going to have, how is it going to navigate the reading wars? And so 
uh, you know, there, I think looking for bias and trying to solve for bias is going to be really important, not just for the people making the models, but for those of us that are consuming them and using them as part of our uh, our everyday work. Well, one of the things I'm trying to do uh, to make sure that uh, my term paper is uh, done by the student is to ask them to do something uh, about uh, things that are going to happen in the future. So let me give you the example that I'm going to actually give them. I'm going to ask them, find uh, a senatorial race that's coming up and pick uh, the senator. We're going to limit the options there, the senator or the opponent who seeks the seat uh, of your choice. And um, you're the campaign manager and you got to assess what are going to the issues that are going to help you, how, what your position should take, what's going to be your political strategy, how you're going to mobilize your base, how you're going to win the middle of the political spectrum, how you're going to win the primary, how you're going to win the general. So it's it's about how you're going to help somebody accomplish a task in the future. Is this going to get around my um, worry? You know, it's interesting. I Let me tell you how I would handle that if I was one of your students. I'd actually use the chat GBT, especially with the plugins. Plugins give you access with a whole bunch of other capabilities, including the ability to analyze data from files. And so what I would be able to do with that is pull in the latest polling. You can pull in different voting patterns. And then you could ask ChatGPT based on that to create different types of campaign strategies, to create different types of campaign message. You can feed it different articles that would say, here are the winning ways of crafting a political message in 30 seconds and have it do that. So I would, again, turn to my political intern in ChatGPT, give it some data, and then I would use it to generate some ideas. Now, whether or not like students would just cut and paste that, that would get to your the plagiarism issue. Or it could also be like a remarkable sort of assistant to help students be a little bit smarter and more refined in their thinking. They still have to present it. So I think that's the that's the way I, I'm hearing a lot of colleges are trying to help solve for plagiarism issues to to get students to present to orally discuss what it is that, that they've written as a way of sort of testing whether or not they actually understand what they've done or they've just cut and pasted from ChatGPT. Well, that's actually what I've been thinking of doing uh, is uh, having every paper uh, presented uh, in class. Uh, you know, once you get a little larger class, it gets harder and harder to do. So we may end up with small classes in the future because no professors can spend the entire term with student presentations. So maybe that's not such a bad idea. So Socrates did that, you know, he, he, would, he, would, he would ask them questions and they would come up with answers. And, and uh, maybe that's the way we should, uh, we should teach in the future. Uh, so, um, but um, but you're saying that, um, well, my idea further is to say, well, yes, you can use these artificial intelligence uh, tools, just like you can use any other tool out there, but we want you to tell us that you're doing that and, and not do it without informing us and then make sure you're doing your own work, making use of that. Is, is, is the, do you recommend that as a strategy? I do. Like, I think a lot of this is... Uh recognizing students are going to be using it. And in fact, in some cases, you might want to encourage them to use it. Like it would, um, but they just have to be transparent in how they're using it. They have to, uh, 
you know, I think you, you need to push on how are they reviewing the material that these these systems are producing and not just sort of taking it at face value. But yeah, I, I and again, the, the example you gave me, I just I kept thinking of all the different ways you could use ChatGPT with different plugins to analyze polling data, analyze voting patterns and trends. And to use that is like I would have a political intern to help them make and guide a political strategy. And uh, in some ways, you would want students to start thinking about using kind of those tools, much of the same way that if you gave, you know, a real sort of big data analysis project, you'd expect them to use uh, Excel or other kinds of data analysis tools. The key is like making sure that at the end, the the student is really sort of represented that this is their their thinking and their work, and they express a little bit how they use the tools and in what ways they did. So maybe we should have in the paper itself. Uh... The student can say, well, I first of asked this very vague general question, and they gave me this ridiculous response, and then I started putting in this new information, and they got better and better. And so this is how I used it. So that becomes part of the paper. Is that yeah, a plausible great. way to do it? That's a great idea. I mean, one, you're surfacing use, but then also the other thing you're surfacing there are the prompts. And as you know, we talked about at the beginning, Prompts are the the thing that unlocks the magic of these AI models. If you just ask it, write a political strategy, it's a terrible prompt. If you give it kind of a whole set of uh, different, more nuanced prompts, more detailed prompts, it's pulling from other data. That's a very sophisticated prompt. I think you want to be surfacing the ways of constructing a prompt to kind of get these really better, um, better types of outputs. So, John... Um... This is really this is really fascinating uh, help. As it is literally help, I must I have to tell you. And I think it's going to be help for other people out there too. That a lot of people are are worrying about this. But um, uh, are you optimistic then that this is actually going to improve educational experiences? It's going to improve teaching. It's going to the learning process is going to be enhanced. You know, it's a great question. I have two minds on this one, and, and it, it depends a little bit on the verb you use. Like, could it improve education? And the answer is yes. This could be an amazing assistant for everyone involved in education, from administrators that are trying to work on communications to parents or trying to analyze student data across their, their uh, school and their school system. It could be an amazing tool and assistant for teachers to help them with lesson planning and taking away, like every, you just see, time studies coming out, the teachers are spending less time with students because they're spending more time on paperwork and planning and other kinds of administrative tasks. Anything we can do to free some of that up and bring some of the joy back to teaching because you could spend more time with students, we should be embracing that. It is remarkable what you could do with these systems in terms of tutoring. A few lines of English language can turn these tools into an adaptive tutor. And maybe that can help unlock uh, the potential and possibility of personalized learning for students. So all that is possible. Will it happen? I don't know. Uh, and that's partly because these tools don't just operate by themselves. They're in systems. And until systems change to accommodate uh, and to really leverage the impact of these, uh, these new AI tools, I'm not really sure we're going to see all the benefits. But this does feel very different. I also just am, am very sensitive to the fact, and I've been part of this too, that uh, we've always hoped and promised personalized learning in ways that technology was going to revolutionize education, and that revolution never came. 
Uh, and in many cases, technology disappointed. And I, I've been testing myself to say, is this like those previous times uh, of crying wolf or is this different? This feels very different. Um, and I, it's hard to express until you start playing with the tool, but these tools just seem to have capabilities that are being discovered every single day that you could see all the different ways in which it can help uh, people in education just create a more efficient and better and higher quality education system. So I'm I'm more hopeful than I am pessimistic on this. So you used a word earlier that um, I was wondering whether our listeners captured, and that's the word plug-in or the phrase plug-in. So what are plugins? Plugins are um, th these plugins are available on ChatGPT Plus, which is the paid version. Uh, Google Google's Bard will also have plugins. So the way to think about this is if your intern is a generalist, plugins give you extra expertise or capabilities. And so some examples that it, you, if you use um, the Instacart plugin in ChatGPT, you can have ChatGPT write a recipe. You can adjust the quantity uh, for the servings, and then it will take that shopping list and pop and put it into your Instacart account. Uh, and so you can have your groceries delivered to you. Uh, the Wolfram math uh, plugin takes all the sort of rough edges of which, again, NX has done such a good job of highlighting the limitations of the math capabilities of the base ChatGPT models. But now with a Wolfram plugin, you get all this extra math capabilities that you didn't have. Uh, there's a plugin called uh, Code Interpreter, terrible name that ChatGPT has released. But it's amazing. Uh, you can upload Excel files to it. You could do financial analysis. You just, instead of writing all these complicated Excel formulas and pivot tables, you just ask it questions and it does data analysis. It comes up with hypothesis. It looks for uh, trends. It does visualization of that in different types of graphs. It's remarkable in a sense of all of a sudden, it just lowered the barrier to doing data analysis without knowing these complicated Excel formulas. So, so these are, are separate apps that you then plug into the, the chat. That's app. exactly, yeah. You do it in the system, but there those are extra capabilities that are plug in to ChatGPT or BARD. So, um, yeah, well, you mentioned this. Uh, we've learned that education technology uh, is gonna change American education. I was a, one of those people who thought virtual education was going to transform American education, that we were going to have great professors available online. Everybody could be taught their geology class by a world-class geologist, and they could actually have all kinds of fabulous pictures of rock layers, and and, and they, they could, you know, have a, a direct experience under the under the tutelage of a remarkable uh, scholar who is also a communicator. And none of that has really happened. You know, we have now learned that virtual education is probably, so far at least, inferior to classroom instruction, even from ordinary teachers. So you say this is gonna be different. So why is this gonna be different from the great digital revolution that? supposedly was going to happen about a decade ago. So I think I've been reflecting a lot on this, and I, I'm going to say I, I've totally refined my thinking yet, but I, if you look at the past waves of technology, everything from what Rick Hess has talked about this, with the book, and then you had television, and then you had the internet. 
the revolution in those different types of technologies was in distribution. You had content and it distributed the content in a wider audiences and offered it at much, much lower costs with the internet being virtually free. But it didn't really sort of change instruction. Even, even virtual learning was just trying to help distribute and make more available, more accessible teachers through different types of online learning channels. The reason this, I think, feels a little bit different is that you're not distributing knowledge, you're not distributing content. It's instead sort of an intelligent assistant that can help you with different types of tasks. And if you think about all the different types of tasks that a student is uh, confronted with, or parent, or teacher, all of a sudden having an assistant that can help you with that, at fractions, I mean, of costs on a dollar, that is what I think is like remarkable about this. And we'll do the example of a tutor that in the past, if you wanted to create a tutor that could teach any student in any language, on any subject, in any grade, it connect those lessons to any interest that student has as a way of engaging them. First of all, there, there's nothing on the private sector market that exists that can do that. And even if it did, it would cost extraordinary amounts. But if you literally just type in those English language instructions into ChatGPT, you get an adaptive tutor that could teach fractions to a sixth grader and connect all the examples to Star Wars or to horses or to sports or to something else. And so I don't know, that that may not transform education right now, but that is that is on a trajectory of suggesting that we might be able much, much, much more closer to personalized assistants and tutors and instructors uh, than what we had had in the past. Well, do we need schooling at all? Maybe homeschooling is the wave of the future. Maybe a family will just sort of point a child to the right uh, set of tutors that they can obtain online. And, and then the, the student can interact and communicate with those tutors. They can say, okay, I have to learn math. I got to learn fractions today, but I want to learn it in the context of uh, getting to Mars. So how, how, how can, so that's what I'm going to do. Can that work? Yeah, I think you could see a path for that in homeschooling. I think you could also see this, think of all the, the existing content and curriculum companies right now that you you think of Scholastic that has a hundred years of content and characters. And those characters can now come alive as tutors in all sorts of different ways. I was um, playing with this with, uh, you could get, you could create that adaptive tutor that we were talking about, but do it in the style of Elmo. And all of a sudden you have Elmo uh, from PBS and Sesame Street teaching you uh, different types of, of, of issues, but you could have it into other different types of styles. So I could see curriculum or content companies using this as a way of putting an intelligent layer on top of their other types of really good high quality content. You can see homeschoolers using it. I think it also, Paul, like one of the things you're surfacing here without saying it too, is here's one of the real risks is like in the process of doing this, are we further isolating students? Um, because I, I, I'm not sure if the, the solution of this is more screen time with uh, with an intelligent tutor, but I, I think that's one of the, the new twists we have to start giving some of these AI systems is what is the, the way of maximizing more social interaction with other students, with the teacher, uh, with parents, uh, and minimizing the time spent with a tutor. That's that's a really interesting problem that I think in playing with the ChatGPT you could see it actually do some creative ways of minimizing screen time to maximize more uh, social interaction, but still get some of the instructional content done. 
All right, but the new issue that's come up is the legality of all of this. Uh, some authors are um, saying, you know what, you're stealing my product. You're training your uh, generator on my what I have accomplished, and that's illegal. You're that's a violation of copyright. I'm suing you. Are lawsuits going to bring AI progress in AI to an end? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure it's going to bring it to an end. It's not clear how successful some of these lawsuits are going to be. But put aside the, the lawsuits, what it has sort of done is that now everyone realizes if they have volumes of text data, that all of a sudden is very, very valuable. And that is like true on, on online forums like Reddit. It's true on open source forums like Wikipedia. But again, think about uh, those in the education community that are just sitting on uh, troves of text data, whether it's assessment companies that have all assessment responses uh, over decades, Scholastic or the publishers, uh, all of a sudden they have a really valuable commodity. And that's this uh, all the text and the other types of data that are sort of been curated within their own sort of form of curation. That's very valuable. And I think what you're going to start seeing, we've already seen this in the news industry where they're trying to form partnership relations where they essentially give these large language model providers access to their data for a certain cost so that the providers have to pay for it. And I, I, I don't know if we have the right solution there yet, but I bet there's going to be sort of an economic private sector solution that forms some sort of agreements to kind of license that to these uh, LLMs going forward. So now, is this going to help me with my uh, filing all these reports to administrators that I have to do? They keep demanding more and more reports on this, that, and the other thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I'm spending most of my life uh, talking to administrators who seem to be multiplying by the day. Is this going to solve my uh, problem with administrators? I think we should try, Paul. I think we should. <laughs> I think you should give me some of the... The request coming in, and let's see if we can you know skip the term papers. Let's just see if we can do a, a Paul assistant that can actually help free up your time, so you're not just doing all the the drudgery of the paperwork. But I I actually think so. I I don't know. I I I just this morning was looking at. There's a new tool. Um, it's uh, for immigration advocates to help them with all the paperwork they have to fill out on behalf of someone applying for a special visa, or temporary protected status. And the whole sort of premise of it is using AI to fill out those in their their world, the administrator reports that you're doing and and just to get that a first draft slightly faster. So I, I don't know. I'm pretty confident, Paul. I think we can we could do something here. And and how about all those letters of recommendation that have to be written every year? Can, oh, absolutely. Can, can I ask uh, yeah. for help? You absolutely can. You, uh, yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, you can. I, especially if you give it some of the, the the past examples of some of your great letters of recommendation, it can learn what a good Paul Peterson recommendation letter looks like, and then it can start spitting out things in that uh, in that style. Well, but then I was told, don't tell them anything because um, administrators have been telling me, don't give them any of your human capital because your human capital will then get absorbed into the system and they'll be making use of you. So if I start uh, feeding in, you know, the letters of recommendation that I've written for people in the past, number one, what does do this do to the concept of confidentiality? And number two, uh, you know, exactly was, you know, 
don't have to worry about how that might get used. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah. The way to think about this with privacy is that any of these public facing large language models, whether that's Google Bard, Claude, as you mentioned before, or ChatGPT, the free version of ChatGPT, anything you type into it or give to it becomes part of its training set of data. Now, it's not that it's not like a search engine. If you did a letter of recommendation, I can't go to ChatGPT and say, show me the last four letters of recommendations that Paul Peterson produced. It doesn't work that way, but it does become part of their general uh, training data. The one caveat on this is that if you're in the paid version of ChatGPT, they have like almost the equivalent of incognito private mode where anything you're typing in at that moment does not get stored uh, in the system and does not become part of their training. And so that's one way to do it. But as a general rule of thumb, anything that is highly confidential, personal identifiable information, health information, financial information, one should not be typing into these systems because it does become part of the, the broader training data. So what is this incognito feature? This is something I haven't heard about before. So this is where you can actually give it some information, but it will not be absorbed into the system. So do all of the various artificial intelligence entities have that feature or is it limited to one or another? It's limited to ChatGPT plus, so the paid version right now. Uh, I it, I think it's only a matter of time before Google and Claude have a similar sort of feature. It's very similar to, I think, a feature that many of us have used or seen on web browsing, which is like a private browsing mode, or in the Chrome, it's called incognito. And that's just where, when you're in that mode, uh, it's not getting stored in your history, and you, there's extra protections in the data that it's sharing to the public. Think of it as kind of something similar uh, to that. So what policy recommendations do you have to the education community? How how do you how do you think the policies should be set so that the future goes forward in the direction that's most desirable for the education of our next generation? A great question. And this is one on a macro standpoint, policymakers are really struggling with how to think about this moment in AI and what is the best regulatory framework going forward. You have some of the companies that want a licensing scheme. And if the way to think about that is that before a large language model that's more powerful than the current ones, uh, in order for it to get released to the public, it would have to get a government licensed in, uh, in order to do that. Um, there are people who are debating whether or not we should have one single entity that regulates AI or if we should more diffuse that across different type of issue segments, recognizing that the AI that does a self-driving car transportation is very different than an AI doing drug discovery through the FDA, very different than an intelligent tutor uh, that is underneath the US Department of Education. None of these things are settled. Everyone is still sort of wrestling uh, with the best ways of thinking about a policy approach. The one commonality and the one that I think that we can begin thinking about in education is a risk-based framework in which to think about AI. And, and the way to consider that is that we just sort of know intuitively that if an AI is grading your essay that's going to determine whether or not you graduate or get into a college, that carries much more risks and consequences than just using an AI system to write uh, answers to a, a term paper or to do an intelligent tutor. And so we want different to assess different types of risks and have more scrutiny on higher risk and higher consequence uses of these tools 
Um, that feels really important. I mean, second, it just feels like we're in a moment where we need to be encouraging lots of experimentation and innovation um, and different types of uses with this and just trying to learn uh, because that is how we're going to surface different risks and harms and problems. And it's also where we're going to surface some of the benefits and opportunities. But I think it's a moment to be leaning into experimentation and encouraging innovation. Um, uh, otherwise, we could be just using hypotheticals all day long about all the different ways that this can create harms. We don't know yet. We need more, more experimentation and some more data to help surface that. Well, John, you have eliminated so many things. Now, I figured out a question, however, that's going to be the, the most difficult one for you to respond to, and that is, how should what should my investment strategy be? Because I see the market saying, the market is telling me AI is going to revolutionize the American economy and uh, the money is going to pour in and all, and all those big companies out there are going to become richer than ever. And so the market's going up. But I remember the dot-com crisis back around the turn of the century where everybody was betting on uh, the internet in the same way. And then one day everybody said, well, it's not happening quite as fast, so maybe is not, and so crashed. So which direction are we gonna be going? Is this the market gonna keep going up and up and up or are we gonna have a sudden crash and it will be known as the AI crash? I mean, I think there is some level of an AI hype cycle bubble that's going on. That said, I spending time in San Francisco with some of these companies and also with just people, entrepreneurs that are participating in hackathons, there is so much energy and excitement in a way that I've not seen in Silicon Valley in, uh, in decades. And I think that is, it, there's energy about how do you use these capabilities in a whole bunch of different ways in business and productivity and computer coding and education and healthcare and climate change. And so I think there's energy there. I think we're gonna see lots of new startups I also think at the end of the day, like in a year from now, I bet most of the listeners on this podcast are not going to ChatGPT to use AI. They're not going to Google and uh, Bard or Claude. It's going to be AI embedded in most of the systems that they're using, whether it's Microsoft Office or Google uh, the Workplace or other kinds of tools in education. AI capabilities are just going to be baked into that. And so um, I, I think it's going to be a, a huge boon to a lot of companies. It's going to create a lot of new creative startups. And I'm just excited. We might get a whole wave of startups here that can solve real challenges for teachers and for parents and for kids. And uh, I don't know. That's the that's a hopeful future I want to bet on. Well, thank you, John. I just fed all of this information into my latest version of chat, and it came back and gave you an A. So thank you for joining yeah, me in the education. That exchange. could be one of those hallucinations. Again, do not listen to everything. That <laughs> I've been speaking with John Bailey, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and author of a just-released article on the Education Next website entitled AI in Education, Leap into the New Era of Intelligence Carries Risks but also plenty of promise. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the EducationX website every Monday at noon Eastern time.